Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus, and this episode is part two of Scott McKnight's 2020 talk on restoring a goodness culture in our churches. This episode isn't meant to stand alone, so if you haven't already, go back and listen to part one. Enjoy! I want to look at seven characteristics of a Tov church. And as I mentioned before, Tov is aligned against. So if we want to talk competition, this is the kind of competition we want. Tov wants to conquer Ra, evil. We want goodness to beat out evil and want to resist it. Seven characteristics, then, of a Tov culture, and these are not in any particular order, but each one of them then also has something it has to resist. So, um, first, a Tov culture tells the truth. And I'm, I'm, I found these characteristics in working on the problem churches in Chicagoland and the United States particularly, of the kinds of things that need to be characteristic of churches instead of spinning. So uh, a church that is marked by Tove tells the truth, and it resists false narratives, the spin. So we don't say that a person has been called by God to another church when the truth is we found them morally deficient. Second, and there might be better ways of saying that than morally deficient and avoid lawsuits, but let's not lie and spin the story. Second, a church marked by Tove nurtures compassion. A compassion culture recognizes and resists a narcissist culture. Narcissist cultures are all about themselves. The success of the church is trumpeted from the platform, but what it really means is that I, as the pastor, am unbelievably successful. That's narcissism. When narcissists have no compassion, they don't see other people. They see people as opportunities for their own success. And there's a brand new book by Chuck DeGroote about when the narcissist comes to church. Very good book. Third, a church marked by Tove is full of grace. It operates with the word grace. And therefore, it resists fear. When people in your church fear you as the leader, Something's wrong. People in the church should know you as a person marked by grace and tove. Fourth, a church marked by tove puts people first. People are first. And therefore, it resists the encroaching institutional and what I sometimes call the leadership culture syndrome. It puts people first. So so let me just give an example. 
When the stories about these women came out, about these churches, the instinct of some of these churches was to protect the culture of the church, protect the brand, the name, the institution. Instead of saying, oh, this person has been wounded, how do we respond to wounded people? You know, you go to um, an emergency room and you will encounter most of the time doctors and nurses who who take you first and they go, oh, no, this is a person, we need to know how this person is feeling. We need to ask them, we need to listen. Put people first. The next characteristic, I think this is five, is a church marked by Tov does justice. And a church that does justice resists a loyalty culture. Now, this is a very interesting expression uh, and category in church life today. We're finding people who have leader churches, who have leaders who number one characteristic is they want loyalty. They want sycophants. One of the great books of the ancient world was by Plutarch. And the title of the book tells the whole book, How to Tell a Flatterer from a Friend. A friend in the Greek world was marked by frankness. That is, they could tell you what's going on. They could look at you and say, that's bad. You need to stop doing that. And um, some kind of leaders don't want truth tellers around them. They want people who are loyal. So they find sycophants. They find uh, people who will tell them what they want to hear. And they gather those people together, and what should we do? And they tell the leader exactly what the leader wanted them to say to them. And it's just a cycle of loyalty rather than justice. So when something comes up, doing what is right frequently is over, overwhelmed and trumped. That's not a pun. Um, um, is trumped by uh, loyalty rather than justice. The next characteristic Sixth is to serve, a church marked by Tov serves. It serves and it therefore resists a celebrity and hero culture. I've gone blurry again. I have to wait till my camera catches up here, I think. Is that, um, we, we have, we have developed heroes and celebrities in forming cultures in local churches. And we need to prevent this from happening by developing a concept of service. I believe, um, and this is as an outsider, maybe it wouldn't work in churches. I don't think any pastor should be preaching 50 weeks, uh, 50 weeks a year. I think that they, how about that? There we go. That works better. Someone help me on the comment. Thank you very much. That's Chris. Okay. Okay. Um, I think pastors need to, who are particularly skilled and gifted, and I can give you 50 names, they need to step aside at times and let other people bask in the glory of that kind of leadership in order to share it. And we need to have pastors who are involved in serving other people. And here is, for me, the most important thing. If you're involved in serving other people, 
don't tell people about it. Because then you get glory for serving. Uh, instead, just serve. Keep your mouth shut about it and do it. And I've, I've, I know so many pastors who are like this. And I've even asked at times, because of, I've worked on pastoral studies and, and writing the book Pastor Paul, I'll say, are you involved in any kind of local service? And they'll say, well, a little bit. And I'll say, no, look, I want you to tell me. Well, I don't tell anybody what we're doing. And I, I've met pastors who don't, who won't tell you what they're doing, but they're actually serving in the community and they go incognito. I think this is a good characteristic of leaders because it's not unfrequent. It's not infrequent that pastors will serve and then they'll get a lot of glory for their service or leaders in the church are very well known for their service. I, I wonder if that's not one of the greatest Christian ironies is to be known for your service. We don't know the names of the people who were benevolent in Peter's community, but we know they were being benevolent. So I, I encourage that. All right, now, the last one is, is a church marked by Tov as a church. So be a church. Don't be a business. Don't be a, um, a leader culture. Don't be a business culture. Don't be an institution. Uh, when we when we begin to talk about our our pastors as leaders, when we begin to talk through best practices, when we begin to talk about cultures that are institutional, like our church, we are going to lose contact. The labels and terms we use for our churches will shape what kind of institution is formed. A church is an assembly of believers who gather together for fellowship and for worship and for mutual instruction so that they can embody the grace of God, Tov, Christ-likeness, Christoformity, and they can model that into the community and therefore witness in the world to something different at work in the redeeming work of God through Christ in the power of the Spirit. So this is just a quick run through the major sections of our book, but I wanted to uh, give these characteristics, and then uh, we can have some questions about that perhaps. But I would like to move on to a couple more characteristics of the idea of Tov. All right. Um, so I look first that God alone is Tov and that God's design is Tov and that we are designed for the virtue of Tov in our moral life. And so forth, I would like to emphasize that Tov is God's final approval. It is God's final approval. God doesn't give letter grades or number grades. The final rating of God for his people is Tov. One of the great passages about this is in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21 and 23, when in a parable, Jesus says, well done. That's the translation. The Greek word is you or u, and it would have translated, if it had been said in Hebrew or Aramaic, the word tov. So the final approval of God in our world is tov. Now, I would like to uh, 
turn to something that is ignored, and I want to develop this a little bit and then um, um, try to cover a couple things in First Peter. But I'd like you to think about the word gospel. And I'll avoid a little bit of the controversy that seems to be brewing uh, with Matt uh, Bates and me with others about the meaning of the gospel. And just look at this word. The Greek word for gospel is el angelion, and it means good news or a good message. The word el angelion or you angelion, you translates the Hebrew word tov. Now I'd like us to think about the gospel as tov. The gospel is the tov message administered by our Tov God through his Tov Son and transformative through the Tov Spirit. So this word Tov is not simply, or the word gospel, is not simply good news. It is about God's design for all creation through the power of God's grace, coming into expression in a person's life in such a way that that person becomes tov. And this is where John Barclay's work on grace is so important. Grace is efficacious. It's not simply a gift. It is a gift that not only keeps on giving, it turns us into gifting agents and agents of grace in to other people. So um, we need to see um, our church as a culture of Tov. And I want to develop just a little bit of, of this idea of our church culture because the, the idea of Tov as God's approval and the gospel itself makes Tov central, I think, to the very heart of our Christian faith. Matthew Krausman has written a very expensive book called The Cosmic Tyrant or something like that, in which he developed through emergent theory in science that cultures become agents. Just as a beehive is far more than bees, but becomes a culture itself. And as um, a garden becomes more than dirt and seeds, but a culture, and if you've ever had an aquarium, you will know that the water that you create is a culture that only certain things can survive in. And if you've ever tried a saltwater tank, you know it's even more of a challenge, and that's a culture. We need to see our church as a culture, but we need to see the church culture in our local church as an agent. And I go back to the statement by David Brooks at the beginning. We can never underestimate the significance of the place we work, the culture that our church, our work, or our church has because it begins to shape us. 
And so I want us to uh, discern what kind of agent our church actually is. What does it do to us as we participate in it? I've been in a lot of churches, and I've experienced in very light ways the cultures of many churches, some church cultures, and uh, I'm not pointing fingers at any one church here. I've been in a lot of church cultures where the lights are so bright on me on the platform that I really can't see anybody in the congregation. I've, I've often wondered, what, what does that, what does that do? I mean, and I've been in churches where the screens behind me are monster screens and I have become larger than life. I've been in church cultures where the church architecture is the architecture of entertainment and performance. I've been in other churches where the architecture is a cross. And you can't go into those churches without you sensing, I need to be quiet, a sacred culture. And I think we need to start thinking about the people in our churches as helping to form such cultures. What kind of culture is at work in our churches? And I mentioned uh, that I wanted to look at First Peter. And uh, I want to start with this very idea that we are to become people who do good. And in this pandemic, I think that the letter of First Peter can be particularly vital to us. That Peter is writing to the translations, typically are to exiles who are temporary residents, and to foreigners uh, who are non-citizen residents. First Peter chapter one one two eleven. And what he's pointing out is that the social location of these Christians is at the, at the edge of society. They're marginalized. And when we've learned about the churches in Rome, we've realized that many of the Christians lived along the Apian Way. And I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but they lived on the Apian Way because it was, it was cheap and for poor people. And the only time traffic was permitted as it would go into the city center, was at night. So many of these Christians in Rome had a very noisy night because nobody had air conditioning and closed windows. There was the rackety, um, the, the noise of the carts going through the city of Rome to set up business for the next day. So... So many of the Christians were marginalized. They were suffering. And we have a lot of Christians today and during this pandemic in different ways, struggling and suffering and feeling marginalized in our culture. And in that, into that very culture, Peter writes thematically, I urge you as aliens and exiles, as temporary and non-citizen residents, to abstain from the desires of the flesh that war against the soul. So there's resistance. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles 
so that though they malign you as evildoers and say just nasty things about you, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God when he comes to judge. And then Peter tells them how to relate to uh, to the government. He tells slaves who are believers how to relate to their masters, always with good works. How, how, he tells wives how to relate to non-Christian husbands and to their believing husbands, and he talks about the Christian family. Always telling these people that they are to be doing good. Tove. And this draws us back to the language of Jesus. All right? Luke chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus said, I ask you, which is observant or lawful on the Sabbath? To do tove or to do ra? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Saving life is tov. We need to work at saving lives. Luke 6.33 If you do tov to those who are doing tov to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So Jesus wants us to crack the cycle of evil in our culture by learning to do good to people who don't like us and who are different from us. And uh, Boy, do we need this today. Uh, it, it is, to me, unbelievably discouraging to watch how Christians talk about one another politically. Um, we are so politicized and partisanized, whatever you want to call it, in our culture. And I think we need to raise up a generation of people who say enough is enough. We're going to be tove, whether it's to a Republican or a Democrat, and we're not going to ask him, we're not going to care. Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do tove to them. Lend to the person without expecting anything back. There's tove is generosity. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. So Peter tells the believers in, in, um, in Asia Minor, with the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do good. Now the NIV translates, who do right. I think it's the NIV. Somebody does. It, it is to do good. In 1 Peter 2.15, it is God's will that by doing told, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Nothing like resisting nasty people with kindness and generosity and tove. I've seen this happen in my life. I've seen this happen in other people's lives, that when someone is being mean to someone and they are kind back, the meanness seems to drop. First Peter 2.20, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing told and you endure it, this is commendable for God before God. Like Sarah, 1 Peter 3, 6, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is tov, good, not what is right. Do It's the same idea, but the word in used there is, is doing good. And do not give in to fear. 1 Peter 3, 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing tov than for doing evil. So then, 1 Peter 4, 19, 
those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So we are called to do good. And I think that in the pages of the Bible, this is uh, acts of generosity. This is acts of kindness. This is acts of justice. This is acts of peace. This is acts as well of resisting injustice, resisting unreconciled relations. It is resisting uh, warmongering. It is resisting all things that are marked by evil. And so I would encourage you in your churches to begin to contemplate um, acts of tov, acts of goodness, uh, that are marked by the pages of the Bible on this theme of tov. I want to reiterate the big idea. The big idea in in our sessions today is that we should never underestimate the culture in which we live and dwell. That that culture is going to shape us. And this is uh, what Rick talked about is so true. And that is um, when our culture, everywhere we go, is telling us that we have to move from good to great, which means just not quite good enough, then we uh, we have to resist that. We want to form a culture where tov is the ultimate mark of what we're achieving. We want to realize that this culture is an agent that acts upon us and, and in a sense, swallows us into its culture. Um, it is... Uh, I, I found in uh, in our research on what was happening in the Chicagoland churches something that I had I had no idea was happening in churches, and I wrote to many pastors to ask them if they were doing this very thing. They're called non-disclosure agreements or non-NDAs at some level, and it's from the business world. And what I discovered is that many churches were uh, discovering things about people. And were, um, or in other words, people in churches were finding things out about their leaders and what was going on in the church and knew things that could jeopardize the church and were beginning to talk. And churches were paying these people off. I know a person who was offered seven figures to keep her mouth shut. And she said, I'll never do that. Seven figures in a church. That's a million dollars or more. I know this happens in churches. How can that kind of thing be going on in a church that is called to tell the truth and that says uh, says of their master that he told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life? It's not truth. It is being swarmed by the culture of the business world because it works and it protects our brand, keeps our reputation. We have to denounce this and resist it and form cultures that are truth-telling, so good at truth-telling and so good at grace and so good at kindness and generosity and forgiveness that when something like uh, something bad happens, we know how to swarm that person with grace 
we know how to come around that person in prayer and through the power of the Spirit see transformation and reconciliation occur. So I would like us to realize that our church culture is alive and well, that we need uh, we need to work on our cultures becoming agents of Tov. I'm moving closer if I can get it to, uh, to focus. We need to see that our churches are agents of something. And we want them to be churches that are agents of Tov. Well, uh, Ken said that um, when I was done, I was supposed to quit, so I'm done. Where are where are we? Is anybody else here? Okay. Thank you so much. That was that was really really good. Really really tove. Um, <clears throat> I think Mark's going to come back on as well. But one of the questions I have as we as we're talking about this is when you think of justice and and in Portland. Um, justice, activism, those kinds of things are, are deep values within the culture as, as well as the church. Um, but what does Tove look like when you're fighting systemic evil, um, like racism, let's say? And in the midst of that, um, I guess it's hard for me to picture what I know justice is Tove, um, but when there's injustice and as the people of God, we're supposed to be the ones that prophetically push back on injustice. How do we do that in a way that is Tove? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, you know, Rick, this is, um, I, um, this is a huge theme that has developed in evangelicalism in the last 20, 30 years, is um, justice. I mean, I when I grew up, justice was for the mainliners and the liberals. We were Christians. Fundamentalists is what we were. So I'm, I'm totally on board with, with justice um, as defined by the Bible. The, justice is a relationship to God that is measured by conformity to the will of God. So I would say the first thing, the way we best resist racism in our churches, and I'm fortunate because I grew up with a lot of African Americans. I did not grow up with Latin Americans very much, but a lot of African Americans. And I think that the best way to resist racism in our churches is to embody reconciliation in our churches. It is easy to go downtown Chicago, Portland, Atlanta, and to walk on a street with a placard and feel righteous altogether for what we've done. But it is beyond difficult for us as white privileged people to listen to African-American stories, to know that culture, 
and to listen in such a way that it begins to transform. Corey Edwards wrote a book called The Elusive Dream. She's an African-American sociologist, Christian professor at Ohio State University. It's a small book, and it's dynamite. And she is the first person that I saw really make clear what white invisibility, white power was all about, and how decorative many white churches are with their ability to put African-Americans and Latin Americans on platforms and to make them feel like they're integrated. She said, no. She says, that's not what it is. It is actually, the, the, in a sense, the sharing of power in a good way, in such a way that white invisibility is blown apart and we become a unified people as we learn to listen to one another. And by and large, whites have a huge responsibility right now of listening because they don't know. They think they have the answers, but they don't have the answers. And I'm fortunate to be at a seminary that has a lot of African-Americans in our classes. And we, we are a seminary that's one of the most highly integrated seminaries in the evangelical world in the United States. And I can tell you that our classrooms at times are laboratories of truth-telling in ways that would never happen reading a book. So I, I think um, the protest, the resistance of racism is going to go nowhere until our churches learn to embody reconciliation with one another. I think that's where it got to start. And I think the leaders have to be leaders on this by getting to know African-American, Latin American, Asian American leaders and pastors and meeting with them, listening to them, sharing life with them, and learning what all this is about, uh, rather than reading a book and saying, we're going to develop a program to work on racism. That's, that's not the way to do it. Scott, I was wondering, just uh, just kind of going back to the church and the seven characteristics of a church, and I mean the 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 concept of of tov, you know, just being goodness, but in some ways, uh, it's a violent thing if it's going against kind of what the status quo is and the infrastructure and so forth, because it's going to move some things out and some things at times are really hard to displace and uh, old monuments, old totems, they don't want to go. So what, what could you say to, I want to ask this from a, a, a lead pastor's uh, role. And then also from a person that may not be a lead pastor that's in an environment where um, they see things that are not in alignment with that. What 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 are what are some some suggestions you might give in terms of how you may be able to navigate through some of the backlashes you might experience by trying to establish this value within your church's culture? Oh boy, Mark, this is this is a big one. This was a big part of our research, um, and I want to I want to start with with this. When I was uh, I knew about the Willow story. I really wanted to kind of stay out of it. But my daughter 
and her husband continued to talk to me because they had been involved in that church and they had so many friends at Willow Creek. So they continued to talk to me and I happened to be reading a book on the pastors in post-World War II Germany. And I got to tell you, I was shocked at the number of parallels of what happened with the pastors in post-World War II Germany and what was happening to churches in the United States. And what I mean is this, that the pastors of Germany would not admit any complicity in the Holocaust. They had nothing to do with it. And I kept thinking, really? One pastor really was calling Germany to the truth early, and his name was Martin Niemöller. Now, he was a very close friend. He was a friend of Bonhoeffer's, but he was also Hitler's private prisoner. When he told the truth, people rejected him. But over time, they began to tell the truth. So, I use this as an illustration that a systemic culture that is not shaped toward Tov will resist the incursion and invasion and moments of Tov that begin to occur. So I believe that we, uh, as leaders, have to become discerning through the power of the Spirit to see where things are not right. And we can't always... You know, you've been in situations, Mark, as a, as a leader, Rick, and all these people. You've been in situations where you go, "There's not, that's not right, but I can't do anything about it right now, and I don't even know what to say or what to think. But over time, we go, that's what happened there. And this is what I wish I had said at that moment. I think we, we're all like that. So I think that we need, when we realize that, we need to back up and say, this is what happened. I don't think it's right. We need to work on this. So we have to have courage on the part of leaders. I have experienced in my life that this this sort of Tov culture is more often recognized by the lay people than by the leaders. That the leaders have to listen to lay people. When lay people are experiencing fear, the pastor can't say, well, That's their problem. That's a narcissist that does that. The sensitive pastor says, "Why? what am I doing that is inculcating fear in people? I don't want people to fear me. I want people to trust me. So to me, pastors have to have the courage to pursue this, and this is going to be, they have to have the patience to work at it, you know, the simplest solution, I guess the simplest solution is to shut the doors down and start a new church. Most people aren't going to do that. That's not the way to go. That's not learning. The second easiest solution is to get rid of everybody around us and start with all new people. That's not going to change the problem, uh, probably, or fix it. So I think we have to start with the very painful realities of listening, learning, telling the truth, Uh, doing the hard work of self-discipline ourselves, listening to the Spirit, reading the Word of God, letting it impact and transform us so that we become agents of Tov and encouraging people 
to be agents of Tove. But I don't think that, I mean, my experience is this, is that when the leaders, uh, okay, let's say this, in the ideal church, the leaders are full of Tove and the congregation is full of Tove and everything works swimmingly well. Sometimes the leaders are not so Tove and many of the people are Tove. And sometimes the leaders are full of Tove and the congregation is full of Ra. And I've, uh, I've, I have some pastor students and friends who've been in some really bad situation in churches where people are just mean. And you think, what is going on here? And so I think that we're going to have to do the hard work of patience. And, um, and I don't have all the pragmatic solutions that pastors like you guys might have. Uh, I do think, uh, that I, I have a, uh, I have a Bible that teaches us that we need to be striving for Tove. And that means that we got things to learn. We're not going to get there and it's, it's never going to be perfect, but we should be striving toward Tove. And I, I ask this, what does it mean? To be tove in the selection of music, uh, what does it mean uh, to be tove in the uh, in how we have meetings, how often we have meetings, who's on our committees? Um, all those things, I think, can be reshaped by by tove. Scott, could you maybe contextualize the difference between success and fruitfulness as as I think those two things get equated, um, number, size, popularity, whatever, uh, we, we put that under the banner of fruit, spiritual fruit, and then everything is sort of justified. The means are justified by the ends and the ends are, are fruit. Therefore they're tove. Um, what's it look like? to pull those apart. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, you're, pu- you're pushing me uh, on this, this category and this idea, and I think it's a really good one, right? Um, I'll start with this. How big do you think the Church of Rome was in the first century? Wasn't it like 50 people? 50 to 100, probably. What was the social location of most of these people? Robert Jewett and Jeff, uh, um, a German scholar named Peter Lampa have investigated all the names in Romans 16. And most of those names are connected to slavery. So there's a pretty good chance that most of the Christians were in apartments, not houses, Tenements, they're called, multi-story, ramshackle event places. And we're meeting together in small rooms like a living room, no bigger than that. Fifteen people may have been max. So there's somewhere between, I mean, some people have stretched it to 200, maybe five or six house churches in Rome. But most of us would say the letter that Paul wrote to Rome is one of the greatest things that ever happened to the church because of the penetration of the gospel into all sorts of levels. And there cannot be any question 
that the church was of the world was transformed because of what happened in Rome in those churches. So I would like to start with the category of Tov. Fruitfulness to me is a really good biblical idea. Um, but I think I would distinguish fruitfulness from numbers and normal measures of success in our churches. And so I, I, I like my idea and I guess I'm stuck on it. Um, success is when we achieve the design God gave for us in our situation, in our life, in where we are. That's, that's success for the Bible. It is not measured by comparison to other people and other churches. It's measured by whether we have achieved what God has called us to do. And um, I was influenced by people in my life that no one will ever know. I mean, because they're, they're not, there's nothing famous about them. And I think in our churches today, we need to tell stories of ordinary Christians, plain living people doing ordinary things, raising their children, working, working and providing for their families and leading their kids into Christ and Christian living and they go on and live. And that's what we need to measure. You know, are people living for Christ in our community and are we nurturing that kind of tove in the people of our church? So that, to me, um, is fruitfulness. I think we like to equate fruitfulness uh, with uh, numbers. And um, maybe I can put it this way, Rick, just as an image. An apple tree is only going to have so many apples on it. The apple tree that wants to be as big as an oak tree is foolish. You know, you don't get to, you don't get to do that. You're, you're an apple tree. And, um, so we need to, um, be fruitful for the sort of, uh, let's say tree that we are. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. Scott, just in terms of, uh, in, uh, like just measurements. So is there is is there a way that you know tove is measurable in terms of what we do um you know through our service services um generosity and so forth and then the second piece I would ask is you know how how do we maintain that how is how is tove maintained Okay uh, I, uh this probably is not a new idea to you Mark I think every measurable element of Tov, of Christ-likeness, of Christian maturity, is also fakeable. I think almost everything that is measurable is fakeable. So the second thing would be this, is that there is a sense in which we will never be able to measure with utter accuracy genuine tove in people. But there are marks of tove that we see in people that reinforce for us that tove is what it's all about. 
So for me, I don't like to make people heroes. But I do like to find good models, role models. And uh, I think we need, we need to focus on that. I really believe that it's important. And I'll come back to something Rick said, maybe get him in a little bit more trouble. I think we need to tell stories of women in our churches from our platform. I've listened for many years to sermon illustrations from pastors, and almost all of them are from about males and sometimes about mom. But by and large, they're not enough about women in the history of the church. We need to tell stories of Latin Americans, Asian Americans, African Americans in our pulpits as stories of Tov. We need to raise up local models of Tov that we can talk about from pulpits and teaching and use as witness to have Sunday school classes, whatever, in which we say, so-and-so is working in a soup kitchen down here, and a lot of us don't know about this, but this has been very encouraging to our church. Um, so I want to come back to, the, to my point, uh, because I said it directly, clearly, I think, at the, at the beginning. Everything measurable about Tove is also fakeable, but the marks of Tove are noticeable, and we need to strive for those in a genuine way. Everything about the teachings of Jesus can be faked. And this is human nature, you know? This is what Augustine taught us, that humans are corrupted, and that we like to seek our own pride and glory. So I believe we, uh, I'm not sure if I remember your second question. I don't even know if I've covered it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah this, the second part was just in terms of, you know, how is it maintained? So it's not, you know, told isn't something you just put your foot in the gas pedal and you go four or five blocks and take your feet off. It's got to be a long-term, yeah. uh, a, a long-term pursuit. And so, uh, you know, how do we maintain that? Yeah, Okay. This is what I tell my students. I tell my students this on a regular time. You need to pray. You need to pray. You need to pray more now that you're a student than before you were a student. Because these are challenging times. You need to pray more as a leader rather than less. Prayer is the nurturing of a personal communication with God. We need to read the Bible to hear God speak more than read the Bible to prepare a sermon or to figure out some problem, a solution to a problem. And so I encourage my students to spend time in prayer, and I encourage them to spend time reading their Bible. I try to read, um, I've been reading John Golden Gates. Old Testament translation called the First Testament. I've been reading it for two years. First year I read four chapters a day, and this year I'm reading slower and reading two chapters a day and marking it. Uh, I think we just need, and I'm not uh, some some you know I'm not into people getting their heads cut off and stuff like that, but that happens in some of the Old Testament narratives. But um, we need to read that Bible to hear from God rather than to treat it as a source book for our ideas and our theology. 
And when we learn to listen to the word, to hear it, then I think that it will keep the discipline up of nurturing Tove in our lives. Scott, when you, when you think of prayer in that way, I'm wondering about the role of repentance. Um, one of my good African friends from Rwanda talked about the reconciliation work that they've done over there and, and how communal repentance was, was practiced. In other words, we're all repenting for even people who aren't here anymore. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that repentance in the American church is very much the thing you do when you've been bad. So uh, a church that's repenting, a pastor that's repenting, that must, you know, there's some sort of scandal involved in this. I'm wondering how repentance plays into our alignment to Tove. Yeah, this is really good. Okay. Uh, you've touched on a nerve, I think, Rick, and that is um, repentance is a very strong biblical idea. It was maintained in Israel, listen to this and wait for it, by a yearly event called Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And Yom Kippur was not an option. You didn't get to say, well, I haven't sinned this year. Everybody came to to Jerusalem and afflicted themselves reminded themselves of their sins and sought the grace of God in atonement. The church developed something called Lent to help keep this in mind. The churches that are, this is what I believe, churches that are not formed by Lent need to develop Yom Kippur moments. They need to develop the discipline of Yom Kippur. We need this. The American church especially needs this. Lent is not something Catholics practice. Lent is something the church taught because the church needs to be prepared for the forgiveness of God. It is as biblical an idea as anything to have a calendar that has moments of repentance in it. So I think that churches that have a Lenten mentality or a Yom Kippur mentality know what it means to repent as a community. And they don't have people say, well, I didn't, you know, this is what happened in some of the churches in the United States where we had all these scandals. They said, I didn't didn't do anything. I don't have anything. That's nonsense. Look at, look at Achan in the Bible. Look, look at, you know, the people are together. Repentance is something not done just by individuals, but it is a posture of the people of God for the people of God. So, how's that? Yeah, so good. And I just think of, I, I guess just how, how necessary it is in this moment, particularly when we think of the subtle ways 
you know, the subtle ways that sin has crept in, whether it's our, you know, NDAs and all, you know, all the kind of businessy stuff that prevents us from, yeah. from Tove. So, Scott, I just want to yeah. go ahead. No, I think that's really, this is the, I think if we have a Yom Kippur mentality in our churches, we may become more discerning and susceptible to seeing where we need to repent. Yeah. Okay, lightning round. These are uh, 30-second questions at most. What is your favorite type of beer? (laughs) You know what I've just discovered? My son is a beer connoisseur. Milkshake IPAs. (laughs) Oh, they're really really good. I like IPAs, but I like... uh, Uh, All right. When's your book come out? I think it's October. The Church Called Tove. Okay. And uh, cigar, pipe, or chewing tobacco? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't have to answer I used to, I used to smoke good cigars, but I don't anymore. Yeah. Thank you so much, Scott. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to have you. And let, let me let me say this. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you, you've brought up this really good point about flourishing and success. There's only one Tom Wright. And I'm not it, and you're not it. He is it. And he blesses us all, and he helps us all, but we have to be who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to part two of Scott McKnight's talk on restoring a goodness culture. This was the last episode we have for you from the archives, meaning episodes from here on out will feature gospel gatherings we're doing live in the Portland metro area. Don't wait to catch them on the podcast. Check out togetherpdx.org slash events so you can see the next one live.